Emmaus Church is a church community delighting in Jesus together for the joy of Ankeny. We hope the following sermon brings you closer to the joy we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about us, please visit EmmausChurchAnkeny.com. I made the decision, it's a silly decision, but I made a decision that I'm not going to eat meatballs anymore. Okay? I love meatballs. It's not that I don't like them. It's not that they taste bad. Um, they're, they're amazing. And when you drench them in some slow-cooked marinara or cover them and melt some cheese on them, I mean, yeah, it's amazing. But, I, but I've mixed them from my diet. I just won't eat them anymore. And the reason for this is because for whatever reason, doesn't matter how big they are, how many there are, I don't feel satisfied. I can literally eat 10 pounds of meatballs and feel like I haven't eaten anything. And the problem, it would be okay if there was like five calories in a meatball, but when you would like to not be 7,000 pounds, you know, eating 100 meatballs to make yourself feel like you've eaten is not an option. So I just decided that I'm going to set them aside. Now, that decision reflects something of a priority in my life. And this is all decisions in our life, right? All decisions are a reflection of some kind of priority, uh, sort of, it kind of reveals, our decisions kind of reveal what our hierarchy of values are. It shows that I want good tasting food, but I want food that satisfies my hunger and food that's reasonable in calories. Those are my values, they're my priorities when it comes to food. At least those are the values I imperfectly strive toward, right? Right. And the question as we come into our today's text is this, does God have have a hierarchy of values? Does God have a hierarchy of priorities for you? Does he have uh, a hierarchy of priorities for Emmaus? It's, It's silly to think about it in relationship to meatballs. But it is serious. If, if God were to have a hierarchy of values for us, it would be the most significant thing. And so this is an important question. It's the question that we find being asked in this passage in Mark 12. We find Jesus showing us the priorities that God has. And not just the priorities that God has, but the priorities that Mark and, and, and create the culture of the kingdom of God that he has been seeking to establish. Fighting, he has been fighting in Mark up to this point, up against the kingdom of sin, up against the kingdom of sickness and Satan and death, and even kingdoms of political oppression and political corruption. He's been contending against those kingdoms. And here, as we come to a close in chapter 12, moving toward chapter 13, we see Jesus laying out the priorities of what the kingdom, the new kingdom that he is bringing, the kingdom of God brings with it, and what that culture looks like and the priorities that he sets up in it. It's agenda and distinctive qualities being under the rule and reign of Jesus. And in verse 28, as we look at this text, in 12:28, we see one of the scribes approach him. Up to this point in chapter 12, there have been scribes Um, and other religious elite in the temple challenging Jesus, seeking to trap him so they can arrest him and have him killed. And we've seen that over the last couple weeks, and they've been very hostile toward him. And Jesus' response to them has been, in some ways, sarcastic, in some ways, turning the tables on them, or just not even answering their questions directly, but but basically uh, showing them how, how silly or dumb their questions actually are. But here in verse 28, we get it, there's a different feel. It's a little bit different tone. It appears that this scribe in verse 28 has actually listened to what Jesus has said. And it's like, maybe, maybe I've got something, maybe, maybe Jesus has something valuable to say to us. And so he asks him not a question to trap him or to try and exploit and, and manipulate Jesus, but instead ask Jesus a sincere question. He says, which commandment is the most important of all? He, he wants to, he, he comes to Jesus with a legitimate concern. And it's a great question. 
It's a great question. And this it was a question that even in the religious elite, they would sit around and debate and discuss this. This was a question they genuinely had. The religious leaders counted 613 laws in the Old Testament, that God had given them 613 commandments. And that's a lot. That's a lot of commandments. I don't know many people that can remember what all 10 commandments are, right? How about 613? How do you keep all of these at the forefront of your mind, especially when you read passages like Deuteronomy 28, where God threatens all kinds of judgment if you break his law? How do you remember that many laws? How do you know what to make most important in those laws? I mean, it's a confusing thing. And so the scribes saw Jesus basically doing some theological jujitsu you know, with uh, the other religious elite. And he wanted to see if Jesus would weigh in and, and help them think through uh, this legitimate discussion. And the, ans the answers the people had to, the, the, the answers that the current leaders in the temple had to this question manifested themselves in some very unhelpful cultural Con, uh, cultural reality. So you had them oppressing poor people, exploiting people. There was greed, corruption, self-protection. The, the worship of God in the temple had been pushed out so that they could make profits. And in Jesus' response, we find a very different culture. In verse 29, Jesus takes him seriously and gives a very straightforward answer. And then... Not only does Jesus give a straightforward answer, in verse 32, the scribe looks at Jesus and says, you're right. And then he gives his own summary of the answer. And then in verse 34, if you look at verse 34 with me, he says there, you are not far from the kingdom of God, which I think is, is funny. It reminds me of my dad when I was a kid. I, you know, I had two other brothers. And it was a testosterone-filled home. My mother would, would, if she were here today, she would make, very much say amen to that. And uh, as boys are like to do with their father, they're flexing on each other all the time, right? Uh, Josh, you probably have this happening between your boys, of flexing and trying to show their muscles and show their dominance. My dad would always, um, when we would do that, he'd always grab our biceps and be like, ooh, you're getting there. Or he'd say mashed potatoes, one of the two. But, but... Here, Jesus basically says, you're getting there. He, that's, that's basically what he says. He looks at the scribe and he says, you're getting it. You're, you're, you're on your way. You're, you're going in the right direction here in your understanding of, of what he says. And then, and, then, <laughs> at, and then what happens after that is everyone's like, okay, we need to shut up. So you get a feel in this text, like almost like in the book of Job, if you read the book of Job, Job is complaining about all of his suffering and difficulty. And then God speaks, and then Job's immediate response is, oh, let me shut my mouth. And, that, and that, that's the feel you get at the end of that opening section in the, in, the, in the passages that we're looking at this morning. And so my question is, as we come to this text, is what's so special about Jesus' answer? What, what is so helpful, what's so special about his answer, he, there's three parts to his answer in these verses, in verses uh, 29 down to 31. There's three parts to it. And these things show what God values most. The things that God prioritizes and, and demands of his people and what he how he intends to uh, create, or the culture he wants to create in his, in his kingdom. And there are three, these are the three parts. There's knowing God, loving God, and loving people. Those are the three pieces that he gives us. That's actually going to be our outline today. But he wants us to know God, to love God, and to love people. These are the cultural priorities of the kingdom of God. This is God's hierarchy of priorities for his people. And so he articulates these for us in those, two, in those verses, 29 to 31. But then he also, in verses 35 down to 44, he gives us some pictures comparing and contrasting what the world looks like in relationship to these cultural and theological values, what life looks like under the rule and reign of Jesus and what it doesn't look like. So first then, knowing God. 
in verse 29, Jesus says that we should know God. This is God's priority. If you are, if you go on a date with somebody, you're single and you go out on a date, and the man looks at the woman and just looks her dead in the eye and with with absolute sincerity says, I love you more than anyone I've ever met in my life. What do you think? <laughs> he does? Well, it may be flattering, but he sounds like a psychopath, right? Right? Any woman that found a man doing that on a first date is not going to be like, oh, I love you too. She's going to run as hard and as fast as she can away from him. He's a psycho. And there, there's a simple reason. He doesn't know her. He doesn't know anything about her. And if someone is expressing that kind of love and that kind of attachment to somebody based upon such little knowledge as spending one meal together, they're out of their mind. Love comes in the context of knowledge, of knowing who a person is. We can have nice and pretty feelings for something or someone we don't know well. We can have a gut feeling. We can have a sense that, oh, maybe this is going somewhere good. But we can't have genuine love for things that we don't know. This is why... It's possible to be married for 30 years and grow more and more and more in love with your spouse. Because the more you know them, the more love you begin to experience with them. The more you know of someone, the more you can love them. Love must be informed. And this is by God's design. And so the foundation, sort of the the bedrock of God's kingdom culture starts with making himself known and us knowing him. And that's why Jesus says what he does here before issuing the first commandment. Notice there in verse in verse 29, he says, the most important is, and then he doesn't give a command. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, known as the Shema. It's a, it was something that the Jewish people prayed every day, twice a day. Part of, their, part of their worship and part of their daily worship at home. And in this, he is, God is informing them who he is, that he is Lord, sovereign, ruling over all things, that he is our God. Notice there, the personal pronouns that are used in this, this is our God, our Lord. So he, he's not just some God out there, but he's personal and he interacts and he speaks and he's in relationship with us in some unique manner. So it's, it's not just God, it's, it's our God, our God who, who rules and reigns for us. And then we see that he is one, that he is one God. And he shows them here something of himself. This is a declaration of the identity of who God is, his character. And all of the law, all of the law, reflects and reveals something of the nature of God. Every single law in the Old Testament tells you something about God, which is why the Old Testament is relevant for us as Christians today, even for the laws that we don't necessarily keep, which is why we're not sacrificing goats up here this morning, right? Because even though that law is in the Old Testament, we have it because it tells us something about, it tells us something about God. God wants to be known. Not knowing God, then, The Jewish leaders at this point, these these religious leaders that are in the temple, they they show that they don't know God. They've rejected his authority. And so as we heard last week in the passage just before this, Jesus, as we heard, is calling them to a knowledge of God. So he's continuing on in this passage what we heard earlier last week, that that he is the king of kings, that he rules over all nations. That he is Lord of life, which is why we have the discussion on the resurrection. That he, Jesus has been revealing to them who he is. And so he wants, and he's showing us and he's showing them that who he is is revealed in the Bible. Like God speaks to us and he reveals and he wants us to know him. And so he speaks to us in his word through, through the prophets and the writers of scripture so that we could actually know him. Now in verses 35 to 37... Jesus here, he exploits the religious leaders, the the sort of religious elite. He exposes uh, the scribes and Pharisees and all these other leaders. He exposes them 
for just how ignorant of who God is in their, in their minds. They, do, they, do, they don't know God. And he exposes them here in verses 35 to 37. And uh, he, by, by pulling out a passage and showing them that they don't, they don't, they don't get it. So, at verse 35, he says, he asks them a, a rhetorical question. It may have been legitimate, and they just didn't have the ability to answer him. He says, how can they, the scribes there, say that the Christ is the son of David? And notice here, the tables have turned. The whole tone of Jesus' interaction with the religious leaders in the temple has turned. Rather than them asking him the questions, now he's the questioner. Right? He, he's asserting his authority here. He's questioning them. He silenced his interrogators here. And stunned silent, they don't, they don't have an answer. They don't know God, and they don't have an answer for why they say he is the son of David. And Jesus wants to help. He wants to show them the truth. In verse, uh, verse 36, he quotes from Psalm 110, where he says, David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I put your enemies under your feet. This is the passage where David is speaking. He's speaking about his son. And he says, uh, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So he's talking about his, his future progeny. The G, the, the, here's the point. When Jesus quoting this and asking them that question, the Jewish leaders saw the son of David as the coming Messiah, and rightfully so. Son of the king is coming. But they understood him to be merely a dude who happened to be related to David. That's the way they understood him. He's just a dude who happened to be related to David. Shares the same uh, biological roots as David. As was Jesus. And Jesus is is one of those that shares the the historic David, Davidic uh, line. And Jesus pointing to their scriptures that they know, that they're the authority on, that they're the ones that lead the people of God with, he shows them that King David in Psalm 110 speaks of his coming offspring, his messianic offspring, as he talks about him as my Lord. This would be like my dad, um, if you can imagine this, my dad Jim, calling me father. Right? He, it, the, the roles are reversed in this text. The father should not be saying to, him, to his son, my Lord, my ruler. It's, it's totally backwards, especially in that culture. In our culture, it's not as weird, but in that culture, it would be very, very weird for a father to call his son Lord. And, and Jesus rightfully says, you guys haven't thought about how God has revealed himself very carefully here. You've not put much thought into this. And so he shows them that the, the, the David's son, the Messiah, that Jesus himself isn't just related to and in the lineage of David, but that he himself is the Lord that Jesus is God. He reveals himself to them as God in the flesh, the King of kings in the flesh. We learn here that Jesus is God, that he is the one who is sovereign and controlling all things. And what we get here is that knowing Jesus is knowing God. And yet these scribes are opposed to him. They don't want to listen to him. They want to stop him. They want to kill him, and they aren't going to stop. There's a few, like this one scribe in here, in this text that warms up to Jesus, and there's a couple examples of that. But as a group, they, they, don't, they don't want to know God. They're rejecting God and his revelation in this text. Though Jesus was indeed a man, he is, as the hum, human descendant of David, he is not a mere man, he is Lord, and Jesus is making that clear. And my question this morning is, do you know that knowing God as Lord, as your God, as the only one God, do you know that that's the most important thing in your life? Do you know that that's the highest priority that God has for you? That, that's what Jesus is saying here. Knowing this is literally more important than the survival of your children. It, like everything. There is nothing more important than knowing God and knowing God as he reveals himself in Jesus. Knowing God is the basic essential function to being human. And without it, there is death. It is the most fundamental element of human existence 
is knowing the God that created you. And the good news is God's kingdom in which God's kingdom is a kingdom in which that knowledge is actually possible, which is glorious and, and amazing. God doesn't hide from us up on some hill and some tower and some massive castle hiding away, leaving us to wonder, leaving us to uh, confused. Instead, he's not far. He's not distant. He, he's actually accessible to us. He, he literally left heaven and came to us in the person of Christ and talked to us and has preserved his word for us so that we can know him. He is revealed in the Bible, revealed in Jesus himself. Hebrews 1.3 says it like this, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And this is who we are called to know. This is God's heart that you know Jesus. So, my, so again, how serious are you about knowing God? How serious are you about knowing your God? This is why we teach you to read your Bible. It's why we make Bible intake a discipline that we practice. It's why I'm preaching from the Bible right now. What higher priority would there be for you to sit down and listen to some dude who can barely play the guitar and can't sing? Why would you care to listen to me? I have nothing to say on my own. And so we, we go to his word and we, 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 want to, we want to know him. And so this morning, God calls you to look to Christ to know God. And to know that Jesus is the most important, the most weighty person, the most weighty thing you are capable of encountering in your life. It is God's priority number one for you to know him. And he has made himself accessible to you in his word and by the Holy Spirit. Oh, second then. Second Loving God. In verse 30, Jesus shows us that he, he adds to this, and in verse 30, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind, with all your strength. Knowing God is intended to overwhelm us and produce in us a love for God that is all-consuming. That is what Jesus is saying here. In every conceivable aspect of your being, God wants to not only fill you with knowledge, but he wants you to experience a loving response to him, to, to receive him in love. This is God's priority for you to not just know him, but to also be filled in every aspect of your being with love for him. This is why Jesus goes through all four of those modes of human being. He's, he's trying to, he's striving or uh, he's straining to grasp at all of the different ways and modes of life that we experience in the world. And he says, you are to be filled with God, the love of God, filled with love for God in every conceivable aspect of your being. It can be tempting here, and some preachers do, uh, dig, they dig into the meaning of what heart means, what soul means, what mind means, and what strength means. But really, I think we, we can miss the forest for the trees here. Jesus' point isn't for us to like get a, like a real specific definition of heart here. That's not, that's not what he's doing. He's, he's trying to make the point that, that love for him is to be holistic, all-consuming in every aspect of your being, being fully permeated and saturated and overwhelmed with love. For God. And you all know, and you know, you know that love must be all-consuming. You all know that. You know it in your heart. You, you, you experience it in your everyday life. You know that because you're grossed out like me when it's not. Even with smaller and less significant things. If a husband cheats on his wife and says to her, no, 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 but I do love you. You don't be like, oh, you do? Nobody says that. They're like, that's disgusting. Clearly, you don't know what love is if that is your idea of love. We know that, it, that when something like that happens, it feels more like hate than love. Because we know that real love, we know that true love consumes the whole of a person. And if it doesn't, it's not love. It may be, you may like something but it's not love. 
And this is the culture, this is the culture that God is wanting to build in his kingdom. A people whose whole beings are filled with love for God, having seen him and having known him. Now the scribes in verses 38 and 39, they don't have that culture. We see the self-interest of the scribes. They do not love God with their whole soul. Instead, they love power, they love prestige, influence, and wealth. They, they care about how they look among people so they can gain social status and accolades with their religious garb and how they clamor to make sure that they have preferred seating and placement. If you got like one of the things that would happen in that culture is if you were a scribe, you could uh, kind of worm your way up into like the rich people, like feasts, and that's what he's talking about there. I think it's in verse 39. Uh, let me read it. Yeah, verse 39, at the end of verse 39, where he says, and the places of honor at feasts. What would happen is if you were at, a, at a, like a, a banquet, a feast with a very rich person, all of the tastiest and the majority of the food was actually placed in front of the, the wealthy person that would host a feast. And so if you had like prime seating up next to the person hosting it, then you not only got the best food for yourself, but you got the majority of the food for yourself. And so they were, they were wanting to get themselves in the best spot so they could steal for themselves the most the, and, and get the most that they could out of their relationship with that. But they, they were manipulative. They were, they were the kind of people, you know, they were building their brand, so to speak, trying to get what they could in the world. They loved God. And they would tell you all day long that they loved God, but they loved money, prestige, and social status. And they tried to fit that all with God, and God just finds that gross. This is why in verse 40, it says that they're condemned. That their, their, their professed love for God didn't mean anything to him because it wasn't all-consuming. Uh, what's interesting... Oh, we're going we're gonna to get... Oh, we'll, we'll get to that later. I'm getting ahead of myself in my notes here. So, when you love something, you are discriminating against other things. Love is inherently discriminatory. I've discriminated against every woman on the planet and have given my wife and her alone my love and marriage. Marital love is almost always the most, well, it's always the most discriminatory act you might engage in apart from love for God. And God here, he calls us to ultimate and total discrimination. The, the Jewish leaders, they wanted, they didn't want to discriminate against love for money and greed and social status. They, 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 wanted, they wanted to have their cake and eat it too. And God says, no, you need to discriminate against everything and everyone else and only love me holistically in this way to prefer him above all things with the totality of who you are. Yeah, I mean, I could go on, but there's so many different ways of talking about this. God is to be the singular highest priority in love, in our affections, as we are called by him to discriminate against every other thing in the world. This is why our vision statement is on here. And this is why it's written the way it is. Just another way of saying what Jesus has said here. Delighting in Jesus together. When you love something, when I love my wife, I set my delight upon her and delight in her singularly. I do not delight in any other woman. And if I did, she would be condemning me, rightfully, right? right? That would be appropriate. In calling us to love God with our whole self, he calls us to make him the supreme object of delight in our soul, to find him more lovely, more delightful, more satisfying, more glorious than anyone or anything of all time, to find him more satisfying than the promises and pleasures of sin. Knowing God fills us with love for him and more and more of him. We set this as our aim as a church, knowing Jesus in the gospel, knowing Jesus in the gospel. This, this, is, this is our aim. This is our vision for what we, the kind of culture we want is what Jesus is saying here. Seeing Jesus' love for us and shedding his blood for our forgiveness, 
we find our eternal joy, we find our eternal delight in Him, and love Him as the supreme delight of our soul, out of knowing His love for us. We don't love God to get God to love us back. It's the opposite. We love God because he has demonstrated his love for us and we can look at it and know it and be filled with love in response to him. Knowing and delighting in Jesus is loving him. It is fulfilling the greatest commandment. It is fulfilling God's priority for you. And this is the culture that God is building in his kingdom. He wants a kingdom full of love. And it's the culture I hope we can build here at Emmaus. And so the question this morning for you is, do you find Jesus more delightful than anything else? Do you find Jesus more delightful than the sins that tempt you? If you're like me, you do not delight in him in that way. I don't. And yet that is something we, that he and his love has paid for so that he would transform us into those people who would love him in that way. He calls you to know him, to see his love for you, to see what he has done for you on the cross, and invites you to know that love so that you would be forgiven and be transformed into a kind of person that has a new heart from the Holy Spirit, that you would grow in your knowledge of him and be filled with the love of God in your soul. This is, this is Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. I'm not going to read it because I read it to you guys all the time. It's my favorite prayer in the Bible. Um, Paul prays that we would know that, that we would be filled with God. And as your whole self delights in Jesus over all things, the kingdom of God is built up in you, and the culture of God's love in his kingdom pours out of you in worship. This is God's purpose and priority for you. Uh, the last thing then, in verse 31, Jesus points us to loving others. In verse 31, let's, let's read verse 31. The second is this, the second priority. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus shows us that the second, the, the second priority to, the second to knowing and loving God is loving others. God's priorities, this is what's really, God, so cool. God's priorities produce human flourishing. God's priorities produce human love and joy and union. Creates a, 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 a culture of human flourishing, a loving culture of peace and joy among people. If we love God and if we find our delight in Him, the natural result, the, the, the overflowing of that reality produces love in other people, love for our neighbor. When a man finds delight in his wife, they typically bear children who then experience the overflow of that man's love for his wife and they serve those children. It's a culture of love that multiplies. That's the idea here, that God's love is multiplying. It's not a, a stationary, inactive, Thing, when, when, when God's love is known in our hearts, it multiplies out from us to other people. But notice here Jesus' modifier. He modifies what he says there. He says, love your neighbor in a particular way as yourself. That's a very interesting thing. Some people struggle with it. Um, but I'll try to, in a very short amount of time here, try to bring some clarity as to what he's doing here. Um, <clears throat> I'm interested in my survival. Um, I'm interested in my own happiness, my own success, my own social approval. I'm interested in my status, my finances. I'm interested in my own family, my life. I, I have self-interest, right? You all, we all have self-interest. And I want to show, I, I hope you see that self-interest necess isn't necessarily bad. It's not necessarily bad. Self-interest actually is good, but becomes sinful when our self-interest usurps love for God and when we pursue our own self-interest as opposed to without pursuing the interests of others. 
We delight in our own well-being. And God created us to do that, and it is good. And we were created to use that impulse to work for the well-being of those around us. That, that's, that's what the love, the culture of the love of God produces. This is how God loves and serves us. This is so cool. God is self-interested. He is interested in his own glory. And yet, he ties his self-interest with our self-interest and pulls us up in joy and saves us. And it's not like God is doing that as like a, as like a second thing that deviates, but he marries it marvelously with his own self-interest and his own glory. This is what Paul argues in Ephesians 1. He says, in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of your inheritance for your self-interest until we acquire possession of it. And then the last phrase is this, to the praise of his own glory. God has married your self-interest, your happiness, your joy, your flourishing with his glory. They're not two different things. This is why, uh, you know, John Piper, uh, you guys know of him, like the Pope of the Baptistic world, or whatever. Um, he says, God is uppermost in his affections. That God loves God more than anyone or anything else. God is the most, as he says, God is the most God-centered of all beings. Right? And, and, and there's good reason for that. If God is the greatest good there is in the, in all of creation and even outside of creation, then for God to love, to make something else his ultimate priority would be to be a kind of idolatry in God. If God really is the greatest good, then he has to be his biggest priority in the world. He has to love himself more than he loves everything. But, and we don't, we, it doesn't, the Bible doesn't explain to us how or how it works. It's mysterious. But in some unbelievably miraculous move in God, he has joined his passion for his own glory with our good and our flourishing. So that they're one thing, which is crazy. Like, it, it, it's so mind-blowingly huge that God would do that. It's, it's, it's how he loves you. And then he calls us to mirror and image that self-interested love in such a way that we marry our own self-interest with the interests of others that we don't allow them to collide. Parents, oh man. Um, as a nurse, I worked in, uh, I'm a nurse. I worked on uh, a pediatric oncology floor for, for years um, and took care of kids that had cancer and was administering chemo to them. I'll never, uh, it's amazing when you watch a parent um, suffer alongside of their child and, and just the uh, absolute horror they endure as parents watching their child, you know, they lose all their hair, they become very thin, holding puke buckets out. I mean, it's, it's horrifying the things that those parents have to go through. And not only that, but the, their bank account is dry. Um, I mean, most, most families whose child ends up with cancer, I mean, they're, they can't keep their normal jobs, and they're, just fi they're financially destitute, most families that go through this. It's, it's, uh, I, I had, I'm breaking. I just know families who didn't have places to live and they were living in their car and coming in from their car to visit their children because of how or what it does to their, their life. I mean, it's horrible. The reason, why does a parent do that for their child? Why, why would a parent care to do that? Because that parent takes delight in that child's flourishing in that child's life. That parent, as a parent, you can't help but see your child and not be happy if they aren't. You can't. Your self-interest is so intricately intertwined with theirs that you can't possibly imagine doing anything other than giving up everything so that they would be healthy and happy. It's, it's, and and that, that's, that's what God has done for us. That's, that's the miracle that God is like a parent to us. His, our, our Father... And he takes 
his self-interest and pulls us into it. And, that, and, that's, and that's, what he's, that's what he's calling us to do. But then you look in verse 40, and you see what this doesn't look like. In verse 40, he's talking about those scribes again and their self-interest. And, and look at how their self-interest manifests um, toward people who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. Um, the, the, when your self-interest is not wrapped up in God, you don't mirror God's ability to marry self-interest with the interest of others. You, you, you don't do that. You, your self-interest is just itself. And other people and their resources are now yours to exploit and manipulate to acquire. People become objects for you to get your own. And you become a hypocrite and fake and hollow as Jesus describes these scribes. The scribes, they weren't paid. A lot of people don't know this. The scribes weren't paid. They, they, they didn't have a, uh, an income from the temple. They, they, they weren't paid. They lived so, solely by raising their own support and relied entirely upon the generosity of donors and philanthropists in the Jewish culture. And one of the things when you read different like historical accounts of what's going on here is, is scribes would find widows whose husbands had built up quite an inheritance before they passed. And what they would do is they would cozy up to them and manipulate them. And he would convince, the, the scribes would convince them to uh, allow them to, to gain some control over their finances. And these scribes would go in and they would actually begin pilfering off of the inheritance that a husband had left, had left his wife. Um, the scribes didn't have homes either. They were, they were entirely reliant upon the generosity of others. This was a law that they had to follow. And so, that they, so what they would do is they would not only get these widows to give them their money, they would also be living in their home and using all of their resources. And so the idea, he, when Jesus points this out, what he's saying is you scribes are finding the most vulnerable people in your culture who happen to have something and you're going in only with your self-interest in mind and you've not married your interest with theirs. And because of that, you're devouring them rather than causing their flourishing, their joy, and their, and, and, and their, and their delight in, in Jesus. They, they, they are instead a parasite. Corrupt the core. No foundation of the knowledge of God, ignorant of God. They had a fake love for God. You could hear the pretense in this. Pretense, making long prayers. Um, just trying to look spiritual, look important in front of other people, gain their respect so they could get in their wallet and walk away. That's what these scribes were doing. They were, and they stand condemned before God for it. But in verses 41 to 44, we, we see what God has in mind, what, what the culture of the kingdom looks like in, in a person who actually embodies this culture. You see, we see a widow, the, the kind that the scribes exploit in verses 41 to 44. See, see the kind of person that the scribes exploit. And, and if you just compare and contrast here, what you see with this widow, you, you, you see the, the, the vast difference between the, the heart and the culture of the scribes and, and, and the love of God in, in this woman. Jesus sits in verses 41 to 44, Jesus sits down. He's watching people as they give their tithe to the temple. He's watching them as they go in to give their, their tithe. It was the practice at that time that as you came to the temple, and, and, and if you remember, this time, you had people from all over Israel coming to the celebration of Passover, and as they're coming in, and they're coming in to make sacrifice, they would bring their annual temple offering and give the, that money, um, and they would place it in these large metal trumpet-looking containers. There were several of them. They were set out in sort of the court of the Gentiles in the outer part of the court of, of the temple so that women and men, because women and men had different places in the temple, and so they would come out and they, they would put them in there. And being metal... They made noise. And so basically when you would come up to the temple, I think this is, this is a legitimate comparison to make. 
when you walked into the temple during this week, you, it would sound like a casino in Las Vegas. The sound of coins falling in slot machines because of the metal container. So you would just hear this constant ring of people throwing their tithes into it. And Jesus was watching them do this. And as he does, he sees wealthy people coming in. They got like truckloads of stuff they're dumping in there, making all kinds of noise. Right? And then this widow comes up. Well, you can imagine, the more noise that you make when you're putting your tithe in, the more status you have, the more spiritual you look, the more generous you appear. And then this little widow comes up. She's got two copper coins, two. They're worth about a penny, it says there in the text. It's actually one of those copper coins in the Jewish um, currency was one-eighth of a penny. So it's about a quarter of a penny, actually, is, is what she brings. That, by the way, when they put in penny there, that is a translator trying to give you information. They're interpreting it for you, which is why it says about a penny and not a penny. Anyway, so. Uh, so that being said, talk about textual stuff later. All kinds of it, Mark. Anyway, um, so point is, is that when Jesus sees this, it, it doesn't make it doesn't make a lot of noise. No one would notice, and yet she puts it in. And the thing is, is the text tells us it, it's everything she's got. This is, she gives everything in verses 30, 43 and forty four. She is a poor widow. Maybe even one of the victims of the parasitic scribes. She has nothing, but she gives all that she has and shows here that she loves and trusts God more as her Lord than the scribes do, the professional religious people do, right? She shows herself to embody these priorities in her own life. In a, with her full being to the point where she would have nothing after giving what she has to God. The widow, not the scribes, are the example for the people of God. That would have shocked the first century world. That you're going to look to a, to a, to a poor widow who can only give two copper pennies as the spiritual example of God's priorities in the world. But as we have seen all throughout Mark, this has to make perfect sense if you read through the book of Mark. All, all through it, Jesus has been saying over and over and over again that the lowest, that the people at the bottom, the, the, the insignificant, um, invisible people of the world are the people of God's kingdom. And if we want significance, we must become insignificant. This is, this is God's priority for us. This is, this is his priority for us. To know God, to love him, to delight in him, even above our financial comfort and security. And so also to love our neighbors. This is why we are for the joy of Ankeny, or wherever we live, we are to make the flourishing and joy of our neighbors our own, loving and serving them. So how are you this morning, out of the love that God has for you in Jesus, loving your neighbor here, maybe your children in your home, on your, uh, on your block, at work, at the grocery store, or even at the bank? How are you integrating your self-interest into the joy and flourishing of others in the love of God? Does your love for your neighbor look like Jesus' love for you? Are you as interested in the well-being and joy of each other here at Emmaus as you are your own? This is what God is calling us to. It is this culture that he's calling us to build. And we might think, well, really, how big of a deal is that? I'm going to close with this. The scribe in verse 33, the scribe who started this whole question and inquiry, he helps clarify for us exactly how serious this is, exactly how much of a priority it is. In verse, in verse 33, he, he, says to, he says to Jesus, and Jesus approves of this, by the way. You're, he, Jesus finds his answer here wise. He says in verse 33 at the end that 
that loving God in this way and loving others is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. In other words, if you don't have this, if Emmaus doesn't have this, we aren't worshiping God and we aren't even a church. There is no church that doesn't do this. They're just a Sunday morning social club. This is the measure of serious worship of God. Not the accumulation of doctrines and theological language, but knowing God, loving him, and loving others. This is why Jesus drove people out of the temple in chapter 11. It's why in Hosea 6 it says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. It's why in Isaiah chapter 1, God says he's putting his fingers in his ears and he finds the prayers and the worship of God's people to be annoying because they don't love, know him, love him, or love each other. We are challenged with this, and we know we fail, but God has good news for us in this. We can know him, love him, and love others because God has first known us, he has first loved us in Christ, and he empowers us with his love by the Holy Spirit to love others. We love God by the love of God, and we love each other by the love of God. So we can rest in that, and in the hope of the gospel, imperfectly strive to build a culture of this kind uh, for God's glory. So let's pray and ask God's help in doing that. That was a long sermon, I'm sorry. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you. Um, thank you for your love for us. And I just pray now that as we turn to the Lord's Supper, Lord, that you would uh, minister to our hearts and cause us to rejoice in the great love that you have for us, that we would be empowered to be filled with your love, not only for you, but for one another. In Jesus' name, amen.